When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Dr. Brianna Jackson. Brianna Jackson is a recent graduate from the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University. Her research focuses on Artenism, specifically the many temples that Akhenaten commissioned. As you can imagine, this overlaps quite nicely with our recent episodes. So I sat down with Dr. Jackson to discuss her work and her new qualification. Brianna completed her PhD in May 2021 with a thesis titled The Geographic and Social Spread of the Aten Cult Through Egypt and Sudan, and her PhD was just awarded at the time we are speaking. So, we have a new discussion with a brand new scholar who is exploring an exciting part of Amarna period history. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Jackson, you can follow the links in the episode description to her personal website, her Twitter, and her YouTube channel. Now then, allow me to introduce Dr. Brianna Jackson. So hello, Brianna. Welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, and thank you for joining the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's really wonderful to to join you. Great. How are things going? Where are you at the moment and what's life like? I'm in uh, I'm in the Bronx, New York City. Okay. Um, so <laughs> we're still in kind of a, a quarantine here in New York, so there's not really much going on. Um, and all of my family lives in the Chicago area, so it's just little me over here by myself. <laughs> That's okay. Um so for those, you know, for my audience, you've you've done the amazing thing of completing your PhD dissertation in the middle of the lockdowns and everything that went on through 2020. And, you know, for those who aren't familiar, you literally just graduated. So congratulations. Yes. And thank you so much. I am excited to have you here while you're still fresh and riding on the adrenaline of your accomplishment, which is significant. So what was it like trying to finish a PhD in the middle of possibly the worst disruption that we could imagine in the modern world? Yes, it was it was very uh, difficult. 
And just trying to access resources alone was very challenging. And before lockdown happened in March of 2020, I went on this mad rush of trying to scan as many books as I possibly could within that last week. Um, and luckily, there's a there's a Facebook group where um, people are able to to ask if anyone can share a, um, a PDF of an article, and and that's very very helpful. Um, I mean, there were uh, definitely some some rough times for it, and I think everybody feels that way, you know, in terms of feeling very alone and cut off from others. So sometimes this kind of sets you back a little bit um, in terms of your progress. But uh, and that happened with me. But um, I, I pushed through, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was challenging, but also invigorating. Okay, in what way? Just, uh, just trying to um, find that motivation and using different avenues of, of creativity to kind of motivate me. Um, mm. And so, I, yeah, I was, I was doing a lot of creative stuff as a way to, to get me pumped up to continue my research. Great. Like um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit later because you do have <laughs> interesting creative outlets, which I think are really cool and exciting. So. Um, we'll do our best to, best to get to those before the end of our time. Um, so, yeah, I can only imagine, I mean, at the best of times, PhD research is a solitary, lonely experience. Throw in a, throw in a global pandemic and that must have been challenging. So I'm mm -hmm. sure I speak for everyone when I say it's extremely impressive that you were able to, to complete it in Mabruk, you know. Thank you. So let's... We'll get, let's get, let's get to the meat of the topic then. Basically, um, broadly speaking, what was your PhD? What did you examine, and how how would you sort of broadly summarize your research so far? Um, well, that's why I gave a really simple title to my dissertation, and it's called "The Geographic and Social Spread of Aten Cult Throughout Egypt and Sudan." Um, and so, basically, I did just that. I I looked at archaeological and textual data in um, all of the sites that I could find where there was the potential or a certitude of an Aten temple mm. uh, built at that site, or at the very least, some um, activity relating to Aten worship. And, and I looked particularly at sites outside Amarna and Thebes, um, I do have a chapter about Amarna in Thebes, but I was really interested in the the peripheral sites. Mm, very good, and that's um, obviously a sort of I don't want I don't want to say understudied, but perhaps under appreciated or um, under documented aspect of Akhenaten's religion and his socioeconomic policies is the many many sites outside of the major major centers. So. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's easy for historians, and I include myself here, to to focus on the large ones, the the Karnak shrines and the ones at Amarna, because obviously those are the best preserved. We have the most information about those, which is a blessing and a curse because it's great. We can talk about all the details of those, but they also <laughs> tend to dominate the gen the popular or general scholarship, and certainly the public awareness um, is those two sites. But as you say, art and worship and evidence for that appears in many places beyond those big cities. So 
very briefly, how many Aten temples do we know about and actually have physical or textual evidence for? Um, I did a little math <laughs> last night about this, and um, I, I arranged, well, in my mind at least, um, the temples according to confirmed temples or chapels, because chapels are also part of it, um, yeah. and suggested temples or chapels. And um, so in terms of the confirmed temples, this is confirmed by texts stating this Aten temple in this place, um, and also actual existing temples, uh, even if it's just the foundations, right? Mm. Suggested temples includes other stuff. Um, and we can talk about that. But in terms of confirmed temples um, and chapels, and I'm including sunshade chapels in this, I'm not sure if your audience is familiar, but we can talk about that too. Um, I counted 25 <laughs> Aten okay. temples. That's, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so, I'll, just, I'll just clarify. I, I use temples broadly, but maybe what I should say is uh, confirmed sites of worship um, of, any, mm -hmm. of any size or shape. So 25, okay, that's a lot more than, you know, generally we would expect for any king, really, a single a single ruler to leave evidence for 25 religious institutions is quite significant. Mm -hmm. So getting a little bit more detailed there, what do we know? Do we know many of the names of these temples or is there a gap? You know, what do we what do we know about the identification of these sites? Sure. Uh, not all of them have names that have survived that we know of. Um, and I should also mention that there were possibly two temples dedicated, dedicated, <laughs> dedicated to the god Ra. And at least um, through year five of Akhenaten's reign, a temple dedicated to Ptah was still functioning. So there's even more than just the Aten temples themselves. Um, but the names of the confirmed temples um, mostly were per Aten, so the House of Aten. Um, and these might also be considered enclosures, not necessarily temples, but the enclosure of the Aten precinct, perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. In Heliopolis, there was a temple called the Weches Ra, um, which is he, the one or he lifts Ra uh, uh, in Heliopolis of Ra, that, which is the full name of the temple. I didn't want to give the, all of the uh, the Egyptian names. Um, and then, of course, in, in Amarna, you have the Gempa Aten, you have the Hutpa Aten, um, you have the Ruud Anku Aten, you have the Kedef Akit and Aten. Um, and uh, at Thebes, you have, again, the Gempa Aten, the Hut Ben Ben, uh, the Teni Menu, and the, the Ruud Menu. Mm. So I think... Those are the names. But uh, yeah, some of these names uh, are repeated for different mm. temples. Um, we have temples in Nubian sites as well, but we don't have names associated with these that survive. Okay. So there's that. So if, if the temples are sharing names in some capacity, in some instances, how do, how do you confirm which temple is being referenced? Do they have um, geographic markers, you know, the house of art in in this place they do they do have geographic marcher, markers um in charu which is in sinai there was mm. a, a per Aten that was constructed there and there are ceilings in the tomb of tomb of tutankhamun saying the wine from 
the paraten of Charu. So <laughs> we have instances of that. Great. In uh, Memphis, there is a tomb um, for this this gentleman named Mary Neath, who changed his name to Mary Ra um, during the reign of Akhenaten. And on his statue, it says that he is the scribe of the paraten in Akhenaten and Memphis. Mm which is, is quite interesting. And there's been some debate about that, whether it means that the temple is actually named Per Aten in Akhet Aten and then it's in Memphis, or if it means the Per Aten in Amarna and in Memphis. So there's been some debate about that. Okay. Um, I subscribe to the letter. <laughs> and for those for those listening, uh, we recently did a mini episode about Mary Neath slash Mary Ra. So if you want to listen to that, it is available on the feed now. So broadly speaking, um, where do these Aten sanctuaries, uh, enclosures, temples, where do they show up in a sort of broad geographic spread? Sure. Um, the, the confirmed temples, I'm, I'm just going to really state that it's the confirmed temples are uh, mostly in Delta. So we have Heliopolis and Memphis, and then you have Charu, um, which is near Tel el-Borg, um, which has been excavated by uh, an archaeologist named James Hoffmeyer. So there were some um, Aten temple blocks that were found at that site, and they probably came from Charu, which is quite nearby. Um, and then obviously there's Amarna and Thebes, but then there are, um, in terms of confirmed sites, mm -hmm. I'm counting, hold on. <laughs> um, what is it, four, four sites in Nubia? Uh, no, three, three confirmed. So you have Jebel Barkal, you have Dokigel, and you have Sasibi, where there mm -hmm. are confirmed Aten temples. Okay, so basically they go from the border of the Sinai and the Delta, which is Charu and Tel Aborg, all the way down, all the way upriver to the fourth cataract at Jebel Bakal. Okay. Yes, yes. So, ascent, so broadly speaking, he he commissioned these these sanctuaries everywhere that was within his administrative domain. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I guess on a on a related note, because you've mentioned the sort of the titles and the individuals who are associated with these uh, sanctuaries. What do we know about the administration of these these temples, specifically the ones outside Amana and uh, Karnak? You know, what do we know about the the people associated with them, and what were they doing? Uh, yeah, that's that's quite challenging, especially for temples in Nubia, because there's not really data that explains what was going on there, and it would be interesting to know because it was a, a, a geographical location that was. Um, governed by a viceroy and not the king himself, right? So he had uh, a cons uh, uh, his his uh, right hand was elsewhere. Um, so it would be interesting to know how those would have been run. Um, but for the temples in uh, Memphis and Heliopolis, we know that there were uh, overseers of cattle in these temples. There were overseers of the double granary, um, an overseer of a treasury. So. Mm -hmm you would find um, kind of traditional roles being played by the, the, the temple staff as you would have with the, the Amun temples. So I would say that the, the administrative aspect was probably uh, quite similar or the same even as uh, traditional temples. 
that makes sense. Why reinvent that particular part of the wheel, I guess. So uh, do these, so from what we know about these temples, specifically the archeological sites, you know, the ones that have survived in like the foundations, do these other sanctuaries show any unique features in their architecture or decoration? You know, we have a lot of information about the, the Aten sanctuaries at Karnak and Amana in terms of their physical appearance. What do we know about these other ones? The um, the, architectural, the architectural remains are pretty standard in terms of using Talatet blocks. Um, there are some interesting features of the Heliopolis uh, temple or temples. Um, for example, the, the Wetches Ray, Wetches Ra temple that I had mentioned, uh, there was this massive stela which is now in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. It's huge. And it shows uh, Akhenaten and Nefertiti uh, worshipping the Aten, of course. And it also shows their daughter, Meket Aten, but only Meket Aten, not Merit Aten, which is very interesting. So that's quite unique. You would think that it would be both of uh, the oldest, uh, the two oldest daughters, but it was only Meket Aten who was the second. Um, yeah. And uh, in 2019, there was a block that was found, and it's definitely um, Akhenaten, but it's before the um, the switch to his new art form, and he's he he's uh, depicted as a recumbent sphinx, and mm -hmm. it's it's so fascinating. Um, mostly, you will find blocks made with limestone, but sometimes there are some architectural features. That were uh, that where quartzite was used. Um, for example, the the sunshade of Merit Aten that was found, a block of which was found in Heliopolis, mm. um, at a possible temple at Akmim, there are these very enormous, enormous blocks um, that have Atenist imagery on them, iconography. Um, and so, it's, it, it, of course, the, the usual argument is that any of the architecture found outside of Marna and Thebes was brought there later. But for these blocks in Akmim, it seems a little much to bring such an enormous block. Let me think of a like a size of a desk. Mm. Yeah, it, it would be unusual to, to bring that. And so, I mean, there, there are those aspects as well, the size of blocks. Hmm, but mostly it's it's pretty standard, um, hmm. especially with the text, uh, text formulae um, that give the name of a temple and its epithet. And so hmm. that tends to be pretty standard throughout right. um, the architecture. Okay. In the, in the big picture then, so we have temples, you know, ranging from the north to the very southern limits of Akhenaten's kingdom. What do we know about how these temples, including the major centers sort of connected together in administrative or economic terms. You know, are there any sort of observable features of the archaeology or the texts that give a sense of how they connect together? Well, that's that's one of my more um, original ideas in my dissertation. I, I bring up a concept of a network of temples. Um, and... So my idea is that the temples that share names, so let's mm. say you have a temple by one name in, let, let me use the, the, the Per Wa'anre, um, the, the house of Wa'anre um, as an example. So there's a sunshade chapel 
of Merit Aten that is believed to have been built at Heliopolis. That's where one of the blocks was found. And Joseph Wegner wrote an incredible monograph on it. Um, and it's, it says that this is the sunshade of Merit Aten in the house of Wanre in Akit Aten. Meanwhile, in, Helio, in, in uh, Amarna, in Akit Aten, in the, um, the tomb of one of the officials, it refers to a house of Wa'anre in Heliopolis. Mm. Um, and so there's this, my idea is, if there was a, a house of Wa'anre in Amarna and a house of Wa'anre in Heliopolis, um, my idea was that perhaps whatever temple income or chapel income or whatever income was um, coming into the outlying temple, that part of this um, was sent as a tax to the equally named temple at Amarna. Um, okay. It's a very <laughs> complex uh, uh, setup there. But, and I, and I think that because um, in sites like Abydos, mm-hmm. um, where I, I argue that there was at least one Aten Chapel that was built there. Um, so the chapels that are there, the, I mean, I, I suggest maybe there are two um, or at least one. Um, but the names of those temples or chapels um, are different from what you would find in Heliopolis. So another idea that I had was at these sites, um, there was a very particular aspect of the cult that was practiced, and it wasn't always the same ritual at this place versus that place. Um, so that was those; those were my, <laughs> in a nutshell, <laughs> that was my idea. Obviously, it's a very, it's a complex thing that literally takes an entire dissertation to explain. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, fair enough. So, if I if I've understood you correctly, so we have. We have evidence for sanctuaries in multiple cities, say Memphis in the north and Amana in the middle, and they share the same name. And your hypothesis or your um, proposed explanation is that the temples that have the same name are essentially kind of like sister sites and they're connected to each other and possibly sharing resources, either uh, both directions or the, the one outside the capital is sending resources to the capital. And exactly, then, yeah, you said it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and then so then on and then in the religious sense that maybe these these specific uh, types of temples or sanctuaries with specific names maybe relate to different aspects of the Aten worship and what is required. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Thank you, yeah. So, <laughs> That's interesting because, you know, as I guess um, you can probably help with this, the, the sort of general idea of Akhenaten's religious organization is that he's the central figure, that he's the sole intermediary, intermediary between humans and Ra. You know, he's literally Wa and Ra. Mm. But perhaps um, if there are, I guess, if, there, if there's multiple temples, you know, there's always that practical thing of he can't be at every temple providing the offerings, but Aten still needs all of his offerings. So would these different aspects of the of the religious rituals perhaps be a way around that essential conundrum or just, you know, other people are f- taking care of certain different aspects while he, the king, is focusing on the core relationship with the god? 
Well, yeah, you, you definitely said it. Um, to use Heliopolis as another example, there is a, a, an administrator by the name of Mai who worked there. Uh, he was buried in Amarna. So he was taking care of business in Heliopolis, um, mm. but he was still associated with Amarna. Um, and to bring up the Nubian sites again, um, mm. this was all covered by the Viceroy. So I think that there definitely had to have been um, every, people working at, at these temples or chapels or uh, sanctuaries all the time. Um, and, and I think that because uh, somebody had made an argument, there was a scholar that made an argument about Mary Neath, Mary Ray, who when the capital switched to Amarna that he um, moved there and mm. didn't work in Memphis anymore. And then after the reign of Akhenaten, he moved back to Memphis. But mm. the, the text on his, his statue suggests that he still worked in Memphis and he was taking care of business at the Aten Temple there. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I mean, there, I think that there was definitely um, various people and local people taking care of the cult at these different sites. Sure. We will return with more of my interview with Dr. Brianna Jackson after the break. In Chapter 2, we continue our discussion of Akhenaten's temples and religion and try to get a sense of how this all fits together with our view of the king himself. Then we will talk about Brianna's research and her interests and her extracurricular activities, which dovetail quite nicely with Egyptology as a science. That is Chapter 2 after the break. See you in a moment. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now, part two of my conversation with Dr. Brianna Jackson. We have discussed the details about Aten sanctuaries throughout Egypt and Nubia. Now, it is time to look at them in the big picture. How does this all fit together? And what does it tell us about Akhenaten? We've we've sort of covered the the little the little bits uh, the little aspects of this here and there. So summing up, I guess what what do you sort of uh, what's your idea of how these other temples fit into the larger picture of Akhenaten's reign? You know, what do these other sanctuaries tell us about his beliefs, his priorities, or the way he expressed his ideas? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't know if this is going to if you consider this part of an answer to this question um, but one thing that I mention in my dissertation is that the the move to Amarna was it wasn't just to control the entire population but it was to create a cult city just for the Aten itself just for that god in order to uh, make the the religion mature uh, because you have 
Osiris, he has his own cult site. Amun has his own cult site. So the Aten, to be a mature god, would need its own cult site. And I think that was possibly one of the reasons why the, the new capital city was founded. Um, and, and another one of my um, suggestions in my dissertation is that it was very interesting to me to see that Aten sanctuaries, to use your term, um, were set up in cities or sites that were dedicated to creator or regenerative gods. And mm -hmm. I thought that this was interesting because the Aten itself is a creator god. And so my, my theory is that these, these sanctuaries were constructed at these sites in order to incorporate the creative and regenerative properties of the other gods into the mm -hmm. religion. Um, mm -hmm. In Abydos, there is evidence that there was still Osiris cult being practiced during the uh, Amarna period. Um, mm. And so, I mean, not just, it wasn't just to spread the religion to um, all of these sites, but I think it was also meant to incorporate um, the, the creative energies of these other gods. And in the Nubian sites, it would make sense for him to establish Aten cults there because it was mostly Amun who was worshipped, if only Amun. Um, and one of the things I argue is that it would undermine his, his um, authority to allow in one of the outlying um, regions of his empire, it would, it would undermine him to have an Amun cult still practiced. And so I think that there is some kind of imperialistic nature at least as far as the Nubian sites are concerned. Um, was he crazily, obsessively forcing people to worship? I don't think so, because there's a lot of evidence like uh, what Anna Stevens has published, that mm. so many, even at Amarna, um, traditional religion was still practiced. So I think, yeah, there, there's a sense of um, imperialism as far as the Nubian sites are concerned, but within Egypt, I think it was to uh, incorporate people uh, and the creator gods together mm. to um, create this widespread religion. I think that people willingly across Egypt practiced it, and I, they weren't just forced to do so at Amarna. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. But <laughs> no, it does. It's all sort of... And it, um, so the Aten temples or the sanctuaries... Uh, particularly the ones outside of Karnak and Amarna, they add they add a, they add sort of nuances to the overall picture of Akhenaten's place in the world. You know his the role of the pharaoh within the cosmos and his relationship to the gods, and they sort of um, what's the word they they lead to, they they've led you to a hypothesis that many of the symbols or the ideas that he's promoting are political in nature in a broader sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if you include Nubia into that, I would say yes. Um, but there, I, I think that there was also a strong theological component, at least within the Egyptian, mm. um, the Egyptian sites sure. where these temples would have been created, uh, built. Fair enough. Okay, so that brings me to the end of my questions about Amana. So as 
you know, as anyone can see, it's a very, it's a very large and complex aspect of Egyptian history and there's um, their sociological uh, development. How do you feel about the period now that you've finished, finished your research or your, your sort of your long project? How do, how do you feel about it? Um, well, I, I, I was, uh, my advisor and my committee are anxious for me to publish it. They, they really want it to be published. So that's definitely what I'm thinking about now. Um, when I started <laughs> studying the Amarna period, I, I had a completely different view of the, the period. It was more of a sensationalist view. Um, mm. And then as I continued to research, I was finding things that make, uh, that, that seem like the religion is even more traditional uh, mm. than I had anticipated. And so it's, it's been a journey mm. for me to, to um, learn about this. And I don't think that we're ever going to know 100% mm. about what this religion was about and how it was practiced. And so I mean, it's, it's always going to include a lot of speculation. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm hoping that I can slowly be proved right. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> about everything <laughs> we'll we to, all want that <laughs> we'll bring we'll bring you back in 10 years and see how you feel then <laughs> um, no that's interesting especially the the traditional undercurrents of Akhenaten's religion you know that's it's def that's definitely a sort of a major new horizon for pardon the pun um for historical investigation is how much of his religion really is just yeah. a, a rephrasing of older ideas. Um, exactly. Yeah. As you say, we might, we'll never know the full truth. Arguably the only person who knew the full truth was him and it died with him. And mm -hmm. if there's one thing we get from history is that even he may not have fully understood the nuances of what he was aiming for. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right about that. That's such a good point because his religion was constantly developing. Um, mm. The name of the Aten was developing at least until year 12. Um, so yeah, and I think that he he also, yeah, I think he didn't really know what he wanted. Uh, <laughs> that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Because mm, there's definitely that debate amongst sort of theological historians as did mm -hmm. Akhenaten make it up as he went or did he have a master plan that he gradually implemented? <laughs> I tend to think that for the most part, he made it up as he went. He, well, not mm -hmm. made it up, but his, his ideas developed over time, you know. His, exactly, yeah. Because um, depending how we look at it, when he came to the throne, he was a relatively young man. His ideas, Probably, yeah. may have, he may have been passionate, fanatical, but his ideas could would still naturally develop as he grows and learns. So, and, and the same with the art. Um, he, if you look at Aswan, the the the, the rock cut stila of Beck that um, shows how Akhenaten told him, "I want you to depict me this way." So he did, mm -hmm. and then over time, the, the art softens, and you kind of have to wonder if he had his advisors kind of helping him develop, you know, putting forth their ideas, and then I mean, maybe it was a group effort. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that will have to rely on how old we think he was because 
you know, yeah. people, scholars like Mark Gabold following the 2010 study think KV55 was Arkhanaten. Maybe he was actually a child when he came to power, which personally I find very hard to swallow, especially with how quickly the princesses show up. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the more the the more specific aspect of that is, you know, how was Arkhanaten 19 or 14? You know, what is what is the actual who was who was in control, you know? Who yep. was leading him, who was guiding him? Because yeah, as always, the public image is of a totalitarian, all powerful ruler, but behind the scenes we just don't know how much was actually negotiated. So right. but this all adds to our picture of him. So, okay, great. And now part three of the conversation in which we discuss Brianna's career, her interests, and her extracurricular activities that overlap with historical research. So coming now, let's talk about, let's talk about you. So huh. You know, what, what inspired you to pursue ancient Egypt as your, your research specialty and, you know, what you wanted to, to be, to do? Well, you hear most Egyptologists say that they wanted to be an Egyptologist since they were a kid. I didn't. Uh, I wanted to be everything else, basically. <laughs> I had so many plans. Um, and it was actually my sister who wanted to be an Egyptologist, funnily enough. Um I didn't decide to go into Egyptology until October of 2008. Um, I was originally going to be a veterinarian, and that's what I applied to university for. Um, and when I got to university, right away, I, I decided I would go into French um, instead of biology or animal science. And, um, and this, the whole time I was... Hmm? Oh, it's quite that's a switch. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so I was taking courses in ancient everything uh, throughout this whole time because I was kind of interested in it and most of what was available at my university was just Greece and Rome um, and I was kind of slowly not enjoying the French major because right. we were reading too much contemporary literature that I didn't like I like old stuff <laughs> so um, I took this class <laughs> Um, I took this course with the uh, scholar who would eventually be my advisor in undergrad, Nanome Renatos. Mm -hmm. She was teaching a course on ancient Near Eastern and Egyptian literature. And so I was taking this course and it just, uh, when we when we were reading about Akhenaten, mm -hmm. that was the moment when I realized this is what I want to do. And so I switched my major again <laughs> to uh, classics because that was what was available. And so I got my degree in classics and then I applied to some schools uh, uh, for the for graduate school. I got into the master's program at NYU uh, at the Institute of Fine Arts. And then I uh, applied for Ph.D. programs and got into the Ph.D. program at, uh, at NYU. And my advisor is David O'Connor. So I was very lucky to have <laughs> David O'Connor as my advisor. Definitely. So you you really took the the scenic path before you got here, but <laughs> yes, you know that that brings its own benefits because now you have um, experience and knowledge and things that will that can only add to your your research. So that's good. Mm -hmm. So 
you have you've participated in field work and excavation and you know you've spent spent time in Egypt uh, for your research just out of curiosity you know what is your what are your most treasured memories or experiences that you've had so far um there's a lot <laughs> that's a list <laughs> Um, the first time I went to Egypt was in 2013, and I remember I stepped out of the airport, and I was like, this is unlike any place I have ever been. <laughs> and uh, so that was really interesting, just um, seeing a brand new culture. And um, I remember the, the, the first time I read hieroglyphs on site, <laughs> it was the name Osiris on this fragment of a statue in Abydos. And that's where I've that's where I've been working. Um, so uh, my my fondest memories are not actually involved in excavation or or actual work um, in Egypt, but my my adventures of doing my dissertation research in Egypt. Um, I have some really wonderful Egyptian friends, and they set me up with some <laughs> really great experiences. And one of them. Um, I had lunch, they were Tamea sandwiches uh, and tea inside the pillared hall of Mary Ray's tomb. Ah, <laughs> that, that was so That's cool. I'm sitting there eating right. a sandwich inside his tomb. I'm like, really? <laughs> Actually, it's kind of like what ancient Egyptians did, right? When they would have uh, their picnics during the beautiful festival of the valley. <laughs> That's lovely. That's a really good memory, um, I guess. <laughs> It emphasizes that point that for many of us, we come to we come to Egypt because we love the history and the monuments. But what really brings most of us back is the people that we meet and the, yes. the sort of ex the experiences we have with with them. You know, we can theoretically we can study all of this from a library, but it's the people in Egypt who really make it yes. what it is. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, That's nothing great. beats it in my opinion. Yeah. I am very envious of that lunch. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is my next question is one that I ask everybody who comes on the show and I get the, I get the full gamut of answers. So we sort of learn a little bit about uh, people from this. And the question is that if if you could answer with 100% certainty, like definitive confirmation, if you could answer one question or solve one problem from Egyptian history, what would you choose to know and why? I think this is probably a silly answer, but I do wonder constantly, why didn't Akhenaten send Tushrata the statues that he was constantly asking for? <laughs> I want to know. He said, Tushrata contacts his mother to say, can you please tell your son to send me these statues? And he still doesn't do it. Why? I would love to know that. I mean, it's, it's such a simple thing. Tushrata is right. There, gold is plentiful. What's the problem? He's absolutely right. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't Why didn't he send them? Because if he was melting down all the other divine statues, he must have had plenty of gold. But was he spending it all at a mana? Or... Maybe. Why? Why didn't he? Was he just cheap? <laughs> it's, it does sound like Akhenaten had a f fraught, or not fraught, but a slightly 
impolite relationship with the great kings. Like I'm, there's the one where Sibyl Oliomar complains that Akhenaten hasn't addressed him in the proper status. <laughs> That's, that he is was just a why, brat then. <laughs> yeah, why was he just, you know, egotistical? Had he just really drunk the Kool-Aid in terms of how great the pharaoh was or whatever? <laughs> okay. So why didn't he send the golden statues? That is a good question. Because he, he sent gold uh gilded wood didn't he he didn't yes he didn't yes okay. <laughs> trying to be very sneaky didn't work <laughs> okay so that's fantastic um that's a that's a good answer i like that it's both very specific but it does it does tell you a lot about um the curious questions that we can we can go with in history okay so along let's let's move now to a, a question on the more sort of I guess, sidetrack or the, pers the personal uh, interests. And I noticed when I was going through your website that along, along with your academic research, you've also released a guide to the video game Abduction. And, you know, for those, for those listening who are unfamiliar, Abduction is an exploration and puzzle-solving game, and it's produced by the studio who made Myst and its sequels, which were incredibly popular um, computer games in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, I grew up playing Myst when I was young, so that was quite an interesting um, thing to stumble across. So, you know, that, that it might sound strange that you're you're doing this research and then you're also producing a exploration puzzle guide for a very specific niche uh, video game, but it does kind of make sense because you know history and archaeology shares many similarities in terms of exploration, clue gathering, puzzle solving. So what I'm most curious at is that has your experience with those kind of games impacted your historical research or vice versa? Mm. Yeah, well, first of all, I just have to say I am so excited that you've played Myst. <laughs> so many people <laughs> haven't even heard of it. And I'm like, oh, um, the, the whole Mist series has been very impactful on my life. And, and I know that sounds really bizarre. Um, but for other people listening, I'm sure they will think that it's weird. But um, I think you understand. But <laughs> um, the first time I was 11 years old when I played Riven, and that was the first of the games that I played. I didn't play Mist first. I played Riven, and it was a gift from my brother on, in Christmas of 97. And we didn't play, my sisters and I didn't play until 1998. And yeah, it's, it's very impactful. And um, and I'm sure you can reminisce also about just being in the room and maybe your family's around or you're watching a sibling or a cousin or whoever and they're playing or they're watching you and, you're, and it's like this, it's just, it is not an experience that you can have anymore in this day and age, I don't think. It was a completely unique experience. Um, and I, I still remember the first image that I saw of, of Ribbon and I have a poster of it uh, on my wall. <laughs> um, but I mean, that was the game that really got me interested in games in general. Mm. And uh, the first game about Egypt that I played was in 2004, and that was Pharaoh. Of course. Um, which is a city building game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I still love it to this day. That's a, for our generation, that is a ritual of passage that you play a lot of Pharaoh. <laughs> And then, late, and then later I you come back it. to it and you realize, wait, the economy in this game does not match up, but it's part of the <laughs> way you should work. 
I still love it. They're they're actually remastering it. Uh, an indie mm. group um, yeah. is working on remastering it, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, with with abduction, um, because I'm such a diehard fan of the whole Cyan company, and every, I've just because they they've done so much for me indirectly. Um, just with the with the games that you know, I, I I definitely wanted to support them on their Kickstarter in 2013 when they announced that they were making the game, and it came out in 2016, and that yep. was when I was just starting to work on my dissertation proposal. My advisor retired at that time as well, so that caused a lot of complications in terms of getting things done in a timely manner, which is is totally un I don't blame anybody or whatever. It's just how things work. Um, and then, of course, my ceiling collapsed as well because of a, a flood okay. on the third floor. It was very stressful times. And so this um, the game was a way for me to it's kind of like what was going on during the pandemic. I was able to channel my stress into a creative way. And um, with all of the, it was it was just a way for me to to manage <laughs> the stress I was under. And I created this game guide. Yeah. <laughs> and it, just started off with because you have to draw diagrams you know you've played mist so you have to draw things you have to write down all of the clues that you remember and so it was it just started with drawing diagrams um and then it turned into this whole thing where i just made this guide mm -hmm. <laughs> just to get through rough situations and, and i can I, I showed fellow fans and they said you have to contact cyan and ask if you can publish us so i did and they said yeah go for it and then they worked with me to make sure that it was the best thing ever. They sent me their logo and I was like, oh my God, 11 year old me was screaming. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, you know, just playing these games definitely got me into other video games. And um, oh my goodness, I forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> Whether it's impacted your historical research skills or vice versa. Oh, I see. Right, right, right. right. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, That's if anyone's familiar with Mist, long-winded answers are <laughs> par for the course. I met Rand Miller, by the way. No he was so tall. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. I was so nervous. I don't even know what I said. It was completely blacked <laughs> out. But anyway, <laughs> it's a hero. Um, but with with Pharaoh, one thing. This was oh gosh, whoa! Back in 2015, I had this idea to use Pharaoh as a teaching tool. <laughs> for students who were learning each, uh, about ancient Egypt and about the, the development of the state. And, and you know, I had this, this, I thought it was a brilliant idea. Nobody was on board. And of course, everybody's on board these days, which was really frustrating for me when I found out. Ah! <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just thought it would be a really interesting learning tool. And that, I mean, and I do appreciate that that has come out a lot. Um, and with that in mind, that was one of the, the reasons why I started on my YouTube channel to do um, let's plays of video video games or computer games about ancient Egypt. Um, mm. And then, of course, it became popular in, the main, in another areas of Egyptology. And I was frustrated because I was like, I came up with it first. Um, yeah. But um, so, I mean, yeah, I think that it has it, it indirectly had an impact on me in a very long road. And it's kind of, um, 
it's hard to map that out, but I think that, yeah, there, I mean, if, if over time it has had some kind of a, an impact on, on, on me um, and how I think that these games could be useful in education. Uh, yeah. So there, yeah, there, there's that aspect. I think, I hope that answers the question in a reasonable way. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, okay. Well, I mean, obviously right now it's kind of a, a very growth or popular growth area for academic outreach, but, you know, like yes. a lot of, a lot of um, young, younger people, you know, they played something like Assassin's Creed Origins and that really opened their eyes to the, the, beauty of the actual world of ancient Egypt of, um, you know, yeah. in, like, none of, none of this sort of, um, Hollywood, you know, mummy, the mummy style fantasy yes, grandeur, yes. And, but a game that was based more in here's what, as far as we can model the world might've looked like. And people really responded to that. And, you know, it's one of my favorite yeah. things about that game is I don't actually care about the story, but I just love wandering around and exploring <laughs> So mm-hmm. yeah, they really set the bar. They really did. It is like, it's a really good game, and I would, I would love to see sort of you know, um, more indie attempt takes at that. Um, it definitely seems like at the moment, games based in Egypt are sort of stuck between action fighting games or city builders, and there's got to be more, yeah, more yep. in there. Um, there's a, there's so much opportunity there for, yeah of holistic teaching tools kind of thing um yeah so all right last uh very last question and this is about not about video games but uh before your phd you also did a master's and within that you researched the amana letters or at least a specific aspect of the amana letters and uh correct me if i've misunderstood this but it seemed like you you studied the correspondence between Egypt and the kingdom of Matani. And you particularly focused on references to solar iconography and ideas. So tell us a little bit about that research and, you know, what it, what it sort of resulted. Sure. Uh, Yeah. The, the letters um, from Tushrata were, were a major part of it, but also uh, I was looking at the, the so-called international style of art um and so i was looking at mitanian art as well like the palace at nuri where you have hatherizing um cow heads with rosettes above them and um it's very it's very interesting i wish there was more evidence of uh, their palaces and and other art um but i was looking at at shared iconography um and and I was also considering, for example, um, when Gilu Hepa was married off to Amenhotep III and she brought with her almost 400 people. And I was thinking about how people from, from this completely different um, country, to use that term, um, I hate to use country, but for lack of a better term, that region, there you go, how about we say that, or that, that uh, kingdom. Um, they're bringing their own religion, their own culture to Egypt. And so there's going to be a mix with that as well. And um, so when I, when I noticed how they have a lot of, um, even with the way things are described in the Amarna letters in the, um, what are those, what are those, the, um, the inventories of all of the gifts, 
right. went through them and I saw everything that had some kind of solar iconography and uh, they have things like winged sun disks. On mm. one of the letters from the Mitanni kingdom, there is a stamp, there's a cylinder seal impression of the sun god, um, or no, the goddess, I think it was Shaushka who was depicted on one of the, the tablets. Um, and so, I mean, I, I was looking at the descriptions of solar iconography and then other instances where actual solar iconography was um, sent to Egypt. And also uh, the other thing that I noticed was that they would greet each other's gods um, or at least from the letters from Tushrata indicated that they would greet each other's gods. So he would say hello to Amun. Um, and then he would say, you know, our sun god says hello. Um, and then there were two instances where his father sent Amenhotep III, a statue of the goddess uh, Shaushka to go visit him. And a lot of people, a lot of scholars have missed uh, the fact that this goddess was sent twice. And the common interpretation is that she was supposed to make uh, Amenhotep III feel better. But I think that it was a, um, that she was being sent there to witness the said festival of Amenhotep III. And, and the fact that it, she was sent twice um, within a certain amount of time, a short period of time, I think that she was, yeah, I think she was sent for both uh, said festivals. Um, maybe she would have been sent again. Um, mm. And so, I mean, this is a solar goddess and and just it, I just think that it was really interesting that they had a lot of these shared solar beliefs and I was uh, arguing in the thesis that this was a way for them um, it was one method of many to build a diplomacy kind of to say we have similar ideas maybe we have different names for them but we we understand each other because we have these same religious ideas, for example. So that was that was the gist. That's interesting because that reminds me very strongly of the the festival where Hathor or Hathor comes forth to visit Horus of Edfu. Mm. Um, mm. And as you mentioned the the Hathoric heads in uh, Nutsi or Nuri, and yeah, so so you could almost see it from like a symbolic sort of family relationship building perspective, you know, the great Kings are brothers. So our gods will be siblings as well. Exactly. And, and uh, the kingdom of Mitanni was very, 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 very close to the Egyptian um, Kings, Amenhotep III and Akhenaten because Tushrata's sister and daughter were both married to Amenhotep III and presumably his daughter at least was married to Akhenaten or he I say that he quote-unquote inherited her which is a really nasty thing to say but I think that it's actually a, the, the word for it <laughs> um, so I mean he was Akhenaten's father-in-law and he was um Amenhotep III's brother-in-law. So, I mean, it's very close family ties and it makes sense for them to, to also feel a familial, familial relationship in terms of the religion. Hmm. Well, that sounds very interesting. Do you have any plans to sort of pursue those that research further? 
That would be a good thing, I think. Um, unfortunately, I have absolutely no files of my master's thesis because one of my cats dumped tea on my laptop and before I could oh, transfer God. my files, the computer oh, wow. died and she's oh, sitting dear. right next to me. <laughs> um, Ouch. So I would be starting from scratch, which is probably a good thing anyway, because you know my my uh, skills I think have improved, or at least I should hope they have since my master's thesis that I finished yep. eight years ago. So fair enough. <laughs> well, I hope I hope you consider pursuing that because it does sound like a really interesting angle of discussion. Thank so, you. Brianna, that brings me to the end of my all my questions so thank you very much for coming on the history of egypt podcast thank you for having me this was wonderful great i hope you've enjoyed yourself and i hope you'll consider coming on again in the future to discuss whatever you work on next <laughs> thank you so much that brings us to the end of this interview my special thanks to dr jackson for agreeing to speak with the podcast and I hope you have enjoyed this conversation. That's all from me. I'll see you soon. Take care, and may the Aten shine upon your house. The music for this episode was by Michael Levy, his song Awe of the Aten, and little interludes were provided by Keith Zizzer and Luke Chaos. Follow the links in the episode description to learn more about these wonderful musicians. They have generously shared their songs with me, and I am very grateful. Please consider supporting them. Follow the links to learn more about their music. on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big.